And you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning as we dive into God's Word. As last week, we wrapped up the primeval narratives. You maybe remember me mentioning those two distinctions of the two different um, narrative sets that we have within the book of Genesis. As the primeval narratives is that history of all mankind. And uh, we looked at the primeval narratives and wrapped up by looking at the grace and the providence of God revealed to us in the genealogies of Scripture, and specifically those genealogies that we have in chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis. Now this week, having crossed that halfway point, not the, not the numerical halfway point, I know how to, how to count halfway to 50, but having crossed that halfway point of the two separate narratives, and having crossed the halfway point of our series in Genesis, we begin with the patriarchal narratives. And the patriarchal narratives detail the patriarchs, their aptly name of the faith, of the children of Israel. And this morning we'll be challenged to see the role that God has called us to play in His sovereign work of salvation, as well as challenged... We will also be challenged to either evaluate or reevaluate the cost of following Christ in obedience while living amongst a culture that is ever increasingly opposed to Christ and those who would follow him. And so with that being said, we're going to get right to it. I'll ask you to go ahead and stand again in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and placed his tent with Bethel on the east and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Let's pray. God, as we unpack these truths, unpack the significance of this moment, not just in the history of the Bible, but in our history, as your covenant people, we find our roots all the way back to this moment, to your purposing of all things for your glory and for our good. And so as we look at this narrative this morning, we see your work 
in your sovereign hand. May we be compelled to move our feet in obedience. And may we never leave your word. May we never leave this place the same. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So, before we jump right into unpacking this morning's text, I want to set things up with a little bit of biblical and historical context. So, if we look back just to the end there of last week's text in chapter 11, we can gain a little bit clearer picture of how we kick off chapter 12. If you look at chapter 11, verse, beginning in verse 27... You may or may not have to turn a page or two or whatnot, but chapter 11, verse 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. There's some foreshadowing there. Now, verse 31, Terah took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So we have here the history of Abram's family as they descended from those descendants of Noah, that being from the line of Shem, and and from the descendants of the events at the Tower of Babel. And we see here they are in the land of Ur, of the Chaldeans, and they set out, Terah sets to take his family And he means to take his family to the land of of Canaan, but he stops in Haran, and they settle there. And so they were settled in Ur for a while in their history, and they moved outside and for some reason decided to settle in the land of Haran. So from reading this brief history, we can actually glean a lot of information about who Abram was prior to the Lord calling him. We learn that Abram... As we see here, was only five generations removed from the events of Babel. We learned that Ur was Abram's hometown. And because of the genealogy of chapter 10, we know that the result of man's sinful pride at the Tower of Babel was God's simultaneous grace and judgment of spreading them over the ancient world and giving them different languages and and forming different nations from those people. So... From the line of Shem, the one whom Noah blessed, came Arpachshad, and from the line of Arpachshad came Terah. And so as the result of these events, Abram's relatives, as I said, as we read, landed in and founded Ur, the city of Ur. Now, in the 1920s, now don't lose me here, in the 1920s, archaeologists, and see, that was why I said don't lose me, uncovered the city of Ur. They found the city of Ur, and it was in modern-day Iraq, southern Iraq. And what they found there was stunning, as they, uh, they found a literal treasure trove of ancient artifacts, along with incredibly well-preserved city ruins. And they, as they continued to 
un unveil the city. They were able to lay out a detailed map of the city because of how well-preserved everything was. And un they uncovered many dwellings, both common dwellings and royal dwellings. They also uncovered many things of religious significance, including an ancient ziggurat from which the people of Ur worshipped the moon god. I actually have, there's a picture here of that ziggurat, which, is, uh, which they uncovered as they were uncovering all of these other things. Now, if you remember last week, as we were talking about the Tower of Babel, as it's referred to, this tower was most likely one of these ziggurat structures. And so this is coming after Babel, which means with the spread of people, and even though their language was dispersed, what continued to spread with them? Self-exaltation self and sin. So if you'll remember last week, as I noted, this, the Babel, Tower of Babel itself was one of these structures. And in looking at the spread of sin and seeing here clear evidence of that, at this point you might be asking yourself, what does this have to do with Abram and Genesis 12? Well, knowing that Abram grew up in this context of cultural paganism and only five generations removed from the events of Babel, we can infer that Abram himself was most likely a pagan moon worshiper. But let's not just infer it. Let's see what other information the text provides us. Because from this pagan culture, God would call the one whom he chose to accomplish his will of making his name known among the nations. As from the line of sinful Seth to the line of sinful Noah to the line of sinful Shem to the line of sinful Terah to sinful Abram, and from him would eventually come Jesus. Let's look again there at the first three verses of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So notice here with Abram, we're given no insight into his faith. Did you catch that? Now you may recall with Noah... We're told what? That he found favor in the eyes of the Lord by God's grace. Then we're told that this in, we're told this in Genesis 6, 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now we do not have that designation here for Abram. We get nothing like that. The only reference to draw from as to his faith is in the very God who is now calling him to something great. That's the only time we get reference to Abram's faith is after God calls him. All we know is that he descended from those who were scattered as a result of the events of Babel, only five generations removed. And so from a pagan moon-worshipping family and culture, God called Abram. Abram likely spent many nights looking to the heavens with his father Terah, worshipping the created over the creator. And the truth that God reveals to us in his word is that he has revealed himself across creation. Of course, the most famous one of these verses is Psalm, 19, Psalm 19, excuse me. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they declare knowledge. 
Or take, for instance, Psalm 8 also. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Or the famous New Testament verse on this truth that we have in Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 18, if you're taking notes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So as Abram, coming from this tradition and this pagan culture which spent numerous amounts of time staring at the created but worshiping the created over the creator, now as we read Abram's call, we can imagine those many nights of worshiping a false God, worshiping the created over the creator and hearing nothing back. And now, as he's heard stories of what happened in Babel only five generations ago, knowing surely there must be more out there. And now, Abram hears not from the moon, but from the God who created the moon. And the Lord, and the Lord calls him to leave behind his land, his home, and his family, to go to a place that he does not know for the purpose of God using him to establish a people through which he would bless all the families of the earth. You see, church, Genesis lays the foundation for missions. That's our first point this morning, is that Genesis lays the foundation for missions. Last week, we analyzed the genealogies of Genesis 10 through 11, pointing us all the way back to Adam and to God's providence in creating for himself a people that would declare his name among the nations. And here, in the call of Abram, we begin to realize the unfolding of God's plan. As he scattered the clans and the tribes and the families and the nations in judgment, he's setting, he is setting out to redeem them by grace and for his glory, by establishing for himself a people for the express purpose of declaring his name to those nations for the praise of his glory and grace. See, this is in fact the very thing which Peter points to in Acts chapter 3. Turn with me. Keep your finger there in, in Genesis 12 because we're, we're coming right back to it. But, but Acts chapter 3. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3 because I, just, I don't want us to miss this and see the incredible eye-opening reality of God's word to see God's providence in working from the beginning to set for himself a people that by faith would walk with him in obedience. Acts chapter 3 and verse 17. So just to set this up a little bit here, this is after Christ 
resurrection, obviously, after the day of Pentecost and after they've, uh, the church has then now, the early church has now set out to see how do we live out this faith now? How do we live in obedience to Jesus now that we've seen all of these events take place? And so Peter and John are setting out in Jerusalem and they heal a lame beggar. And this causes a stir of people. And so we see here in Acts chapter 3, verse 17, as Peter begins to preach to this crowd that is gathered. And he tells them, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. As Peter, prior to saying these words, has laid out everything. He said, This Jesus who you killed. He sets out everything that God has done before them in their midst in Christ. And now he says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And here's where Peter begins to walk through Scripture. Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So don't miss what Peter is explaining to this crowd in this moment. Peter points them directly to God's word through the lens of the cross. And so in saying, this Jesus who you killed, he is the very fulfillment of all that God has been doing throughout history. Going all the way back, and he explicitly says, going all the way back to Abraham. That God has always been purposing to preserve for himself a people that would wholly, that is W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly worship him. All the way back to his promise to Eve. He was telling his people that one was coming who would do away with sin. And so from the beginning, God has been declaring his purposes and his plans to his people that they may declare his glory. And what Peter wants this crowd here to realize is that God's promise to Abram or Abraham, as he's later to become, was fulfilled in Jesus. And this is what Peter does as he points the crowd not to some excellent argument of apologetics nor to his own wisdom, but he does so simply by pointing to God's word itself. That in Jesus, God's promise to Abram was fulfilled that through Jesus, he accomplished the necessary work to make a way for all those whom he calls unto salvation by grace through faith. 
that from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, God has always been about declaring his glory among all the peoples. So after Peter says all this, the religious leaders in attendance have Peter and John arrested. However, the word was still proclaimed. Because if you look at the response of the crowd in chapter 4 of Acts, in verse 4, you see, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And so as Peter clearly exposited the truth of God's word and pointed them to the truth of what God had been doing from the very beginning, the word pierced the hearts of the people and the people responded accordingly in repentance and faith. You can turn now back to Genesis 12, but we can learn a great lesson here from Peter when it comes to evangelism. Because a lot of times we can be greatly intimidated because we don't know what to say However, if we allow Peter's example, if we follow Peter's example, we see that all we need to do is present the truth of the word. See, most of the time, the other fears that we have pertain to fearing if they'll respond to what we have to say or fearful if they'll listen or fearful that we are sufficient and, and, or, or capable of doing the task. But what we need to realize is that God has already accomplished the necessary work for salvation in Jesus. And it is God who changes the hearts of man and responds to salvation through his spirit working through his word. So Peter lays out for the crowd that the truth, which we see from right here in Genesis, which is that God's purpose in preserving Noah, God's purpose in calling Abram, in establishing Israel by giving them his law was never for them to keep it to themselves or to attempt to use the law as a means of salvation. That the law was a guide, a tutor to point all people to Jesus. See, Genesis lays the foundation for missions because in Abram, God was purposing to first create for himself a people of one nation that would then develop into a people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. That is his church. Now here's the next truth which God's call of Abram reveals to us here in these first three verses of Genesis 12. is that Genesis lays the foundation for the sovereignty of God in salvation. We can see in God's actions leading up to this point and his call to Abram that God is the one who has done every bit of work necessary according to his plans and purposes. What has Abram done in this moment to curry God's favor or to earn God's calling? Nothing. We're given no history of faith in Yahweh to speak of. In fact, the only inference that we can draw is that Abram grew up as a moon worshiper. And one of the verses I didn't point us to earlier is Joshua 24. If you just want to kind of jot that down in your notes. Joshua 24, verses 2 through 4. We read this as Joshua gathers the elders of Israel. He's gathering them to renew the covenant before God. And he says this as he recounts the history of Israel, of God's choosing them. In Joshua 24, verses 2 through 4, we read this. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, 
Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. So I'll ask again, what has Abram done to this point in Genesis 12 to earn God's affection or attract God's attention or win his own salvation? Absolutely nothing. Who is the one who has called him, revealed himself, and made it possible for Abram to display faith? It's the Lord. God and God alone is the one who saves according to his plans and purposes. And this should leave us astounded and move us to marvel at his glory and grace. Because there's no way that Abraham could, excuse me, Abram to this point could have chosen God in and of himself. On his own, Abram is just another moon-worshiping nomad. But when God's word penetrated his heart of stone, things changed. As we continue reading, we see Abram's response to God's call. If you look there at verse 4 of Genesis 12, verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So just to make sure we're tracking here, to this point, all Abram has received is God's word through God's call. And in that call, he was told to leave everything he knew, land, home, and family, and go to a place, and he's not even given a destination. The destination is the land that I will show you. However, with the call came the promise, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. What an incredible testimony of radical faith in God's word and in his word alone. Because that's all that Abram has received to this point is God's word. You see, Abram's faith in God's word produced instant obedience. Abram's faith in God's word produced instant obedience. So Abram receives both the call and the promise. Because of his faith in the promise, his feet are moved to instant obedience to the call. May this bear true for us as Christ's church, that we would hear the call of go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, while remembering the promise that Jesus, the one who has all authority, is purchased by his blood. And that is, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So as we have been commissioned to go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them, we have the promise that he, the one who has all authority in all things, is with us always. So Abram's response was based solely on his complete confidence in God's word. With no map, no plan or detail, without hesitation, Abram's faith in God's word moves his feet in obedience. The author of Hebrews points this detail out explicitly as further evidence of Abram's faith and what it produced in him. If you're taking notes, Hebrews 11, 
Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10, where we read, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Spoiler alert for our weeks ahead in our series. Heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10 of Hebrews 11. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abram's faith was in the promise. And that faith in the promise moved his feet in obedience to the call. I realize I'm fairly young. But I can remember the early days of GPS. Now, GPS, well, the first time I saw one was a personal laptop that was about, you know, like that thick, much thicker than they are today, and was this big yellow brick that had to be set on the windshield or in the back window so that it could get just enough signal from the very early satellites that were launched. That was my first introduction to GPS. They've come a long ways now. But for GPS to work, you need two points of data, two inputs. You need to know where you are. You need to know where you want to be, where you're going. And then it gives you every little detail in between. It leaves nothing up to guess. Sometimes we put a little too much faith in that path. And we're like, where is this thing taking me? But we just assume that it it knows better than we do, so we just follow along anyways. Well, Abram has zero of those two points of data, nor does he have the, the benefit of GPS. All he knows is, go to the land that I will show you, and this is what I will do when you get there. This is what I will fulfill, and this is what moves Abram's feet in obedience is faith in God's promise, and it results in instant obedience. As we continue reading, we see the results of that. As we continue reading, pick back up in verse 5. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions and they, that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So in responding to God's call, Abram takes his wife, some members of his immediate household, his nephew, Lot, whom he had somewhat adopted at this point, and He either takes some servants of his household or some people who he tells about God's call. There's some debate about who these people are that Lot brings with him, excuse me, that Abram brings with him. But Abram gathers this group and he moves in obedience to God's call. See, Abram was called to leave everything that was dear to him, that was his identity, land, people, and household. This didn't simply mean leaving behind what he held dear. This meant leaving behind his very identity as a person. Everything that defined him must be left behind in light of his new identity as the patriarch of the people of God. 
in light of his new identity given him in the promise of God. Everything that once defined him was saturated in his pagan identity and sinful self-exaltation and was a result of God's judgment from Babel of being scattered. So he must be made new through radical faith lived out amongst other pagan nations. See, this is the call of obedience to God. This is the call of the gospel. Church, the call of the gospel is faithful obedience requires great sacrifice. That if we are to live out the word of God, we will be doing so as aliens and foreigners. See, indeed, this is the call of following Christ, to pick up one's cross and follow him wherever he may lead. Prepared to die to self, prepared to die to this world, and to live out our new life in light of Christ's resurrection. See, this demand is ever increasingly important in our day and age. As the world and the culture continue to position themselves against the cause of Christ, we, as his church, must be armed with the same measure of faith as exhibited by Abram, to follow in complete faith and trust in the word of God, no matter the cost. Notice in verse 6, as Abram comes to the oak of Moreh, where we're told that the Canaanites were there in the land, Meaning he is standing, see the Oak of Moreh was a pagan, it was a place of worship for the Canaanites. And so he's standing at this pagan place of worship, surrounded by pagan worshipers, while trusting in the complete sufficiency of God's word. And he pauses here. So he's traveling through the land that God has promised to give him, but he's traveling through at this point as a foreigner, as an alien, as an outsider, knowing that God is going to provide this land. See, Calvin commented on this, Wherefore, if we desire to follow God with constancy, it behooves us carefully to meditate on all the inconveniences, all the difficulties, all the dangers which await us, then not only a hasty zeal may produce fading flowers, but that from a deep and well-fixed root of piety we may bring forth fruit in our whole life. So in other words, if we truly want to love God and follow Him with a life that reflects His grace, we would be smart to thoughtfully consider Everything that it will cost in this life and in the eyes of this world. The type of emotional spirituality which is so often peddled in many churches today, it may produce a passion and a fever that burns out and it burns hot. Excuse me, it burns hot, but it will burn out when the costs of following God are due, when trials come, when God moves our child to a foreign mission field, when tragedy threatens to tear us apart, only a faith that is deeply rooted will produce fruit for a lifetime. See, faith produces enduring obedience. See, faith doesn't merely produce a temporal obedience 
that burns hot for a while but then burns out. Faith produces an obedience that endures because faith calls us to live out our faith in the midst of a culture that is actively against it. As we pick back up in verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So at this pagan monument, Abram has the nerve to build an altar to the one true God, knowing that this place will once belong, will soon belong to the people of God. Verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel to the east and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So Abram is slowly moving through the land with his caravan in tow, slowly building altars to the Lord who called and said that this will be the land where you will settle. The Lord promised to make Abram's name great. Did you catch that back in verses 1 through 3? That the Lord promises to make Abram's name great. What was it that the people of Babel sought? Come, let us make a name for ourselves. You see, church, greatness doesn't come from pursuing our ways or our desires. Greatness comes from complete and total submission and obedience to the Word of God. See, we find true greatness in this life when God is most glorified in us. From the line of those who sought greatness for themselves came one whose name was made great, but not by his own might, not by his ability to build false temples of worship, but by God's grace. See, for the people of God, obedience is not and cannot be a standalone event, but obedience is a transformational change of lifestyle for us. Therefore, everything changes through the grace of God's word piercing our hearts. See, God's word must be the lens through which we view the world. God's word has to be the lens through which we view everything so that we see everything as part of God's purpose and plan, so that we see how God has purposed for us to live according to his purposes and plans, so that we see the grace of God giving us his word and giving us the ability to understand it. See, we're only 12 chapters into the history of the world, and we've already seen So many times, the human heart's perpetual habit for self-exaltation. As those who are seeking to live a life according to God's word, we have to realize that we will constantly be setting our camps in the midst of opposition, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of temptation. However, to circle back to our first point this morning, we must realize that that is the very purpose for which God saves us, calls us, and sends us is to spread his glory as we live in his grace. It's to set our camps up in the midst of pagan territory that we might set up monuments for him with our lives. 
So as we look at our culture, at our government, at our world, let us do so with a mission mindset, focused solely on placing all of our faith and all of our trust in the Word of God and in God's Word alone and moving our feet in obedience to His call. And as people look back on our lives, may they see nothing but a testimony. May they see nothing but a a monument of God's grace. And may they see nothing but a life lived in sacrifice to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth revealed to us in your word. We pray your grace to grow in us that we may better live out these truths. As we look at the world around us and we see so much brokenness, it's hard to avoid. May it move our feet, may it move our hearts in obedience as we look at all of it through the lens of the cross realizing that you are constantly at work for your purposes, your plans, which will accomplish your glory. And we know that our good is found when you are glorified. So help us to live lives of worship, of sacrifice to you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.